So we've been, the last few weeks have been in a foundation series, setting a foundation for what does our church believe and why is it important. So we've been looking at five things, five ancient things called the five solas of the Reformation. By scripture alone, uh, by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and last week we looked at for the glory of God alone. So imagine for a moment that you were back in school, and I know for some of you that's a long time, and on the first day of classes you are handed your schedule and there out of your eight periods it says, fifth period, Texas history. And I know Texas takes its history seriously, almost as seriously as it takes the Bible. As an, as, a, as an aside, I do not discount what an honor and privilege it is to, to live in this great state and all the rich history that dates back to the early 1800s, the blood that was shed and how Texas has taken a stand time and time again for what Texas believes is true. But with this in mind, you take your schedule and you go throughout your day and finally you get to fifth period, Texas history. The teacher begins to teach and the longer the class goes, you begin to think, this doesn't sound much like Texas history. It sounds more like New Mexico. The days go by and the textbook is left untouched. Yet the teacher has plenty to say about the history of the state that sounds more and more like New Mexico. God forbid it be Oklahoma. <laughs> A few questions, I say that because I think it's God's country. A few questions are raised, one being, how long would this teacher have a job? In Texas, they would be chased out by a mob. Another question is, without any knowledge of the historicity of Texas, how would you know that what the teacher was saying was false? And I've used this as an example before, but how would you know that if a preacher came up here and that preacher started spewing false theology. What if what they said was so close to the truth that it was almost undetectable unless you had a deeper understanding of the Word of God and the Christian faith? Could we as the church know the whole truth as opposed to a half-truth, which in turn could be a whole heresy or a false belief about God leading people astray? So because the Bible is such a massive book with so many authors all inspired by God himself, so many genres written thousands of years ago and translated into hundreds, if not thousands of languages in modernity, we must be careful how we handle a book with this much power. Also, we must be really careful what we read alongside God's Word. Are we letting anyone or anything have the same authority as the Bible just because it sounds true? If we believe, if we truly believe here at Redeemer, sola scriptura, only God's word, by God's word alone, what guardrails are we using to help us know it more acutely and more accurately? We need in the church today, listen church, we need theological precision. For some reason over the years we've thought, we'll just leave the theology to the pastor and the teachers and we'll just come and we'll just listen. But how would we know if one Sunday I decided to come up here and started preaching something that was almost true? How would you know? 
So this morning I want to talk about a few things that, that we find helpful here at Redeemer. And a few weeks ago we looked at sola scriptura, by scripture alone. This gives us the confidence we need to help us see that God speaks in a very specific way in the Bible. We do not look to other books or resources the way we look to the Bible. For the Christian, the Bible is God's communication to his people for all of life and godliness. Look at 2 Timothy 3.16. This is one we've used a lot recently. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Look at what Paul says to young Timothy here. All Scripture is theophnustos, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It makes it clear that all of Scripture is for your whole life. Though it might seem noble, some pastors and scholars, they might use the phrase, no book but the Bible. What the solas were helping codify was that the Bible gives any book outside itself God's truth. It either aligns with Scripture or it doesn't. Look at me, church, for just a moment. It either aligns with Scripture or it doesn't. The Bible is absolute truth. Now, this does not mean we don't read other books. We look to other books for entertainment, for information, for education, and so on. But the Bible is different in the following way. The Bible is, listen to this word, is magisterial in its authority. It is the inspired, sacred text that when it speaks, God speaks. Did you know that? We hear God speak every Sunday. Anytime you open Scripture and you read it, you hear God speak. I've come across people and they've said, well, I just, I just want to hear God speak. And I'm like, well, read your Bible out loud and you'll hear God speak. Is that not true? It is magisterial in its authority. It has kingly authority as it rules over all literature because it is different in the way we see it and the way we approach it. This is why here at Redeemer, and I'm going to continue going back to this, Jamie this morning, she read the sacred text because before whoever is proclaiming the word, the word of God needs to go out to the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God that we get to listen to him speak. Other books and resources like we will talk about today, they have ministerial authority, okay? So the Bible has magisterial authority. The books that we read alongside it have ministerial authority. They only have authority because they speak of the Bible in correct context, or we would hope they would. Much like the moon reflects the sun, the creeds, the confessions, and the catechisms reflect the sacred scripture. 
in themselves, the three, the, the creeds, the catechisms, and the confessions, they have no, no authority or light apart from Scripture. They have ministerial uh, authority. The Bible stands on its own God-given authority and needs no outside support. Look at a couple of places. Isaiah 55, I want you to see this. Isaiah 55, verses 10 through 11. Listen to what the Lord says here to, through Isaiah. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my what? My word be what goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And look at Psalm 119. If you would flip over to Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, 119, 105. It says, and you might have known this if you went to vacation Bible school, your word is a what? is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So I need to answer this question before we move forward. forward. What are the three C's? What, what are the creeds? What are the catechisms and confessions? And don't get nervous because I know sometimes, even me included, you hear words like catechisms or confessions and creeds and you're like, okay, so what are, you know, you've been preaching against what the Roman Catholic Church believed back in the day of the Reformers and now we're talking about catechism. So what are you, what are you talking about here, Ricky? They, all three of those, act in essence as faithful stewards of the Bible. Each C, the creed, catechism, and confessions, they point us to Scripture. That's what they do. That's their job. Creed, if you're a note taker, this is a good time to take notes. Creed means, I believe. That's what creed means. This is an ancient phrasing of what the church has believed for thousands of years, taking the major points of the Bible and simplifying it into a statement that one could rehearse from memory. It was often used to teach new believers the overarching message of the Bible, and in many traditions, it would be recited before Holy Communion or believer's baptism. These are the three most notable. There is the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. You will hear us from time to time here at Redeemer recite the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Secondly, the Catechisms, which is simply all catechism means is question and answer. That's all that means. They are helpful ways to, remember, to help us remember specific things about what we believe in the Christian church. The two most notable in church history are the Westminster Shorter and Longer Catechism and the Heidelberg Catechism, which I have a copy of right here, and there's copies in that, on that back table if you would like to take one. These would be a great tool, now listen, they're a tool to use in family worship for you at home or personal devotion time, your own quiet time, this is a good thing for you to do. It takes what the creeds tell us and in longer form help us flesh out what and why we believe it. Thirdly, the confessions. They are exactly that. 
What do we confess to be true at Redeemer? We adhere to the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. It looks like this, and there's copies in the back on that back table if you'd like to take one home. This is also known as the Second London Confession of Faith. This faithful document dates back to the early 1600s and expands on topics like the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Scriptures, saving faith, divine providence, religious worship, and the Sabbath day, and on and on and on. One of my favorite preachers of all time, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, it was this, the 1689 was his favorite, and he so eloquently stated, this little volume is not issued as an authoritative rule or code of faith, whereby you are to be fettered or tied to it, but as an, as an assistance to you in controversy, a confirmation in faith, and a means of edification in righteousness. He said, cleave fast to the Word of God, which is here in the 1689 mapped out for you. So I want to end our time with this. You're like, you're already finishing up? Yeah, we're going to get to lunch quick today. Our, I want to answer two questions. Are the creeds, the catechisms, and the confessions, are they necessary and are they biblical? Look, if you would, in the New Testament at Ephesians chapter 4. It'll be up on the screen for you as well. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse, I believe it's verse 11. Ephesians 4, verse 11. Listen to what Paul says. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to what? to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul makes it clear here in this letter, in a very specific section, what the job of the under-shepherds, like me, of the church are to do. Our job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry and build up the body of Christ. Now, this might look differently for some people in this room who are Christians, who are in Christ. Stay-at-home moms. Are you being equipped to disciple your children? Grandparents, are you being equipped in what Psalm 145 verse 4 says, from generation to generation? Friends and co-workers, are you being equipped to minister to those you spend time with who may know the real you? Look, if you would, at 1 Peter chapter 3, 
1 Peter chapter 3 is in the New Testament as well. Listen to what the Apostle Peter says. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 15. But in your hearts honor who? Yourself? Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it as a big jerk, with gentleness and respect. Does the world know what your hope is in? With one little thing that happens in your life, does your whole life fall apart, or do you look to your hope, who is Christ and Christ alone? Does the world know? And here's, here's a good way, let me segue this by, we're talking about the three C's here. Where is our hope? Let me read to you out of the Heidelberg Catechism, I've got it right here, question number one. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. What is your only hope in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong wholly to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this, listen church, this was a normal way of life for the people of ancient Israel. And it dates back to the giving of the law in Deuteronomy. Look if you would in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. This is known as the Shema, okay? Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, Moses said, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. Verse 2, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 4, here's where it begins. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these things that I command to you, to you today shall be sorry, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house and you, when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and you shall be, they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This was known as 
the Shema. This was the curriculum for families to learn who God was, who, what he does, is doing, and what he will do. Everyone in the family in ancient Israel would have known this by memory, and they would recite specifically verse 4, in the morning when they arose and before bed at night. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. In December of 2014, I was managing a fast casual Japanese kitchen called Chop Chop in Amarillo. I had just come off a vacation with my family and uh, was closing late that night. I was training another manager. And after a little while, as we're closing up, we had already closed the store down. The cooks were taking trash out, the back, out of the back door. And the guy that I was training, his name was Chance, the guy that I was training runs up and he's pale-faced. And he looks at me and I'm closing down the registers in the front. And he runs up and he looks at me and he says, Ricky, we're being robbed. And there was a moment there, it was a very surreal moment where I thought, no, he's playing. We're not being robbed. And sure enough, out of the back, I see my two cooks coming. And there's a guy coming behind them and he has a gun to their back. And I'm thinking, okay, I can run out of the drive-through door and leave these guys here by themselves. Kind of like this guy that I was training did, he left us there. But these cooks come up and I sat there. And they were like, Ricky, you know, we, 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 don't, we don't know what to do. So he turns the gun to me and he points the gun and this thing looked like a bazooka. I mean, it, I'm sure it was just a itty bitty little gun, but it looked huge. And I said, we already counted all the money, it's in the back office. I said, that's where we're gonna have to go get it. So he gets behind me and he puts the gun in the small of my back right here and I can feel the cold steel in my back. And we make our way around to the office and we sit down, or I sit down, and I take the $3,000 in cash that we had made that night and I stick it in a bank bag and I hand it to him. And as I hand it to him, he's got the gun pointed at my face. And I'm thinking, this is it. It's going to end like that. I hand him the bag full of money. He takes the bag. He walks to the door. He cleans his uh, fingerprints off the doorknob. And as he's walking out the door, he turns around and looks at me and says, God bless you. Have a good night. So as he leaves, I thought, surely the police have been called. And I grabbed the door behind him and I lock it just in case he was going to come back in. Never heard from the guy again. And that night, it was hard for me to sleep. I only had one opportunity after I called the police. I had one opportunity to call my wife. I said, Callie, we've been robbed. I'm okay. I'll call you in a little bit and hung up. And here's the truth about that moment in 2014. No scripture ran through my mind. I didn't think of Jeremiah 29:11 or John 3:16 or even Revelation chapter 20. What ran through my mind was 
Was I afraid to die in that moment? Yeah, I was. Absolutely. I was afraid to be shot. But did I fear what came after death? I didn't. In life, Christ. And in death, Christ. In the heat of the moment, no scripture came to mind. What did come to mind? What I knew about God, his character, his nature, his faithfulness, the vindication of his people, and the impending wrath to be poured out on the unrepentant. I was held firm in the hands of Christ, my Savior, even if the unimaginable happened. To know God is to revere him. To be loved by him is to be secure in him. God was in complete control in that moment. There was no wringing of the hands in the heavens by God saying, okay, what's going to happen? What's he going to do? John Piper often says, God does not show up in an ambulance looking at the mess that's been made. God was in complete control. So let me ask and let me end with this question. How do we know that the sun, S-U-N, the sun, how do we know the sun still exists in our deepest and in our darkest nights? Because the moon reflects it and reminds us that his mercies are on their way. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. I really will end with this. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our what? Our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of what? Works? Merit? Grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us hold fast to our confession. We know these things. We have tools that help us, that put guardrails around us. And here's the truth. Band, you can go ahead and make your way up. I want to extend an invitation to us every week. Both the non-Christian and the Christian both need invitations to life. So if you find yourself here this morning and you are not in Christ, you don't consider yourself a Christian. Here's the truth about what we speak about today, is that, look at me for just a moment, is that anything will lead you astray. You see one good thing on social media, whether it be Facebook or TikTok or Twitter, and it sounds true, you will be led astray because you do not have the truth of God's Word. 
So my invitation to you, if you are not in Christ this morning, repent of your sin, put that sin away, and look to the Lord Jesus Christ who saves you. This is how we know is that the Lord Jesus came and he lived the perfect life that you and I could not live perfectly in our place. He died a substitutionary death on that cross in our place. We deserve to die that death. And in that death, three days later, resurrects gloriously from the grave, making a way for you and I. And after those that time spent here on earth. He ascended to the right hand of the Father where he prays for you. He intercedes for you as your great high priest. Now, if you are in Christ this morning, if you are here and you find yourself, you say, I'm a Christian. Do you need guardrails? Or are you completely autonomous? Is that a sin that you need to ask God to forgive you? Are you being discipled by something that is not true? Because here's the truth, church, is that we are all being discipled by something. Is social media discipling you? Is Fox News discipling you? Is talk radio discipling you? Are you finding yourself discipled more and more by the Word of God? And just like the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon said, let us cleave fast to the Word of God. Let's enjoy good books, but let's live in the Bible. Let's read books that edify us and point us to Scripture. Church, the invitation is here for you. I'll be in the back of the room. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to counsel with you. We're going to worship here in just a moment, and we're going to give you time to do that. Let's pray.